Whenever Atlantis went down, a lot of them, some of them went to Egypt and were survivors and to other places, but some of them went underground. And there's an entire cities all throughout. There's all kinds of tunnels and transportation systems that link them all together. Some of the trains and things down there can go 3,000 miles an hour to link the two the cities together. There's a, like a sun inside the earth that lights everything. So they have light, they have lakes, they have water, they have everything they need. And there's animals down there that do not exist on the surface of the earth. They have uh, live computers, if you want to say that. This is in my second volume of the Convoluted Universe. It talks about the underground cities. They have computers that we can't even approach that can create and do anything they want. And the people are so advanced, they have no desire to come to the surface. They have everything they need down there. They've been down there for thousands and thousands of years. And they're much more advanced than we are because there's no wars, there's no violence. But yeah, there's civilizations under the surface of the earth. And people say, well, it can't be. There's only the magma. It's not. Hey guys, welcome back. Uh, just a reminder, we have a new Hopewell Farm CBD promo code ULTRAJTT15 gets you 15% off the 1,000 milligram and 2,000 milligram CBD for a limited time only, so take advantage of that. The regular promo code Journey to Truth 10 is still active. That gets you 10% off all the other merchandise. The two promo codes do not stack. But uh, make sure you take advantage of that, especially if you haven't tried their CBD and you're looking for a new one to try. Highly recommend it. I absolutely love the stuff. It's really helping me with some back pain and some other areas in my life. And uh, I don't know what I would do without it. Uh, Aaron, did you what is the new Teespring code? Is it still the same? Um, yeah, 20 and back. Um, if it works for you, I know you obviously you said it wasn't working right um, and i think a couple other people weren't for some reason it worked for me so i, I think it works for some people. so yeah 20 and back uh which the 20 and back spelled out that is um that gives you 20 percent off all of our teespring merchandise if it works we've been having trouble with the promo code um and then j j2t20 is another one i made if that one doesn't work oh so they're both active actually they're both active still okay well there you go and that link is below and and uh so take advantage of that. Get twenty percent off all of our Teespring merch if you're so inclined. Today we are joined by Daniel Sala coming to us from Transylvania, and I'm not joking. <laughs> uh, he's, he's coming to us from Romania. He's a researcher. He's uh, been doing lots of tons of research involving the SSP, the Busegi Mountains, and today we're going to get into Hollow Earth, Inner Earth civilizations in particular. Uh, and we're going to dive into some of the research he has done and he has brought to the table for us. And we're really looking forward to it. This is one of my favorite, favorite subjects. I, I'm, I, I can't get enough of it. And it seems to be more and more relevant right now. A lot of inner earth activations lately, you could say. 
uh, especially in the regards of certain animals uh, surfacing that we haven't seen in a while, in particular the white whale and things that are have rumored to have been um, existing in inner earth. I feel like so, there's some sort of activation transition happening with all that. So uh, it's going to be an interesting topic. And Daniel is going to tell us exactly why and how planets are inhabitable on the inside. And he's going to bring the science to prove that. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, I agree. I think it's high time this subject was understood because it's full of you know stigma and it's as real as it gets. And I find that it's more approachable than some other stuff that's considered conspiracies. So if you can make some breakthrough with this and you can go a long way with the others too. So I was very skeptical myself about this for the longest time. I had no inclination until reading the Radu Chinamar series. That, that's what it took to convince me. And it was pretty much an on and off flip. I was all in after that because he does it very gradually, only by the fifth book, which is like 12 years into the saga, do you actually get inside? And he knew to pace it slowly that way so it wouldn't shake anyone up too much. So, yeah, I think I should best, I, it would be best to start with the, the science, the scientific reason why the solid earth theory is really outdated. And it shouldn't come as such a big surprise, really, because if you think about that, all the sciences, but especially cosmology, is so wide open to anything because it's so dated in every way, really, because just have to look at um, the Big Bang Theory, how it violates the first law of thermodynamics, because it, which says that you can't have matter coming out of nothing. And it's... Uh, believes that 96% of the universe is dark matter, which is undefinable. So the best thing to do is just to prove one by one why uh, planets are hollow. And actually not just planets, but stars as well. So, right. Yeah, so well, I'm going to stop you real quick. So this book series you were talking about, can you say that again for the listeners? Well, in English, it's called the Transylvania series. And yeah, I highly recommend it. It's seven, it's seven deep in right now volumes. But yeah, it starts off very easy. So this goes for any normie friends of yours. It would it would be such a good laden for anyone. Uh, and yeah, but to start, it covers the you know technical aspect of it as well of, of Hollow Earth. But uh, actually, for the best uh, details there, you're gonna want to look up. Is the Earth Really a Solid by Oliver Milatovich, which is what I will start with right now, his finds, which, um, so he explains how the current theory is essentially just a series of extrapolations and guesswork, because you haven't so far gotten deeper than 12.2 kilometers into the Earth, which only scratches the surface of the crust, which is around 50 to 70 kilometers deep uh, in the continents and very, very shallow, about three to five kilometers under the oceans. And, and next you have the mantle, which is actually uh, incidentally the last part that they got right, which is uh, roughly 2,500 kilometers deep. And then according to them, you have the inner and outer core, and the outer core is liquid and the inner core is solid. 
and it's the dy dynamism, the movement of the metals, because they're allegedly made of iron and nickel, an alloy. Uh, it's the movement of these two that creates the magnetic field. But before that, so yeah, the deepest borehole, which is in Kola Peninsula, only gets to 0.19% of the way, which is six to 300 kilometers. So that should tell you how much we really know. I mean, how much experiential data we have. The only thing that we can actually go by at all, and in terms of mantle and cores, is seismology, which is the study of vibrations, but mostly earthquakes. And regarding, I don't even know what to start because honestly, it's so full of <laughs> well, misconceptions. Well, we don't have to. Yeah, exactly. And so basically, I mean, we can all agree. I pre pretty much most of our listeners can agree with what you're saying as far as it being, quote, hollow or inhabitable. And it's interesting that the, the dimensions you're coming up with for the crust, because I've, I've done some research in the hollow earth and, and other experiencers, and they claim that the earth's crust is roughly um, 300 miles. I don't know what that is in kilometers, 300 miles thick all the way around and 150 miles in the center of that is the gravity belt or magnetic field is what they what they call it and the whole planet is actually like a pear shape it's not actually perfectly spherical and you see evidence of that and the van allen belt which is just a magnetosphere that they they they've told us we can't travel through which is not true but the shape of that is actually the shape of the earth and if you look at the above view of the the graphic of that it tells you what the shape of the planet is it wouldn't make sense to have a perfectly round planet inside of that magnetosphere and it's really interesting and it's also like a torus so there's the holes at each pole and it's like so if the planet is spinning at 17 miles per second in an electric universe it's a made it's a massive power station and it's creating all this electrical currents and that's how the gravity is formed. Anyway, I could go on and on and on, but um, it's interesting to hear the di discrepancies in the in the uh, thickness of the crust from your research. I'm I'm, I'm just curious, like uh, what it actually is and what that actually looks like. Oh yeah, I'm glad you brought it up because there are many schools of thought, of course. And the 300 mile mark is, I think, from Smoky God, but that is full of inaccuracies anyway, and. Some say, like Diane Robbins says, who wrote the books on Telos, that it's 800 miles. But no, there's no way because it has to be thicker because, oh, and by the way, so the crust is just what we're on is very uh, small, very you know shallow. But the mag uh, the mantle, that's the thick one. And that's the last one they got bright. And that's but they just they have no idea what it what it's in inside there, because the most they can get is some scarce uh, rocks coming up from from the lava uh, from eruptions for there are several hundred kilometers that I said and you're stuck with the finds with by, by, which by the way the findings in Kola Peninsula in the borehole that's the deepest one and there's another one in Germany that's nine kilometers those all went against the textbooks completely in every way so the pressure the uh, temperature the density and they even found water but mainly it's the fact that they predicted that the deeper down you go you're gonna get a gradual increase in all these things like pressure, density, temperature, and they actually found that uh, they found that it got less dense 
after the nine kilometer mark. And they even found basalt way, way deeper than twice as deep as they expected and all these things that the guy who was in charge of that operation admitted that they had they have to give up to, to admit to the fact that they really have no clue what's going on under the earth. And at least they had the integrity, the Russians, to do that. And by the way, most of it was swept under the rug. There's only two books ever on the subject and they haven't made their way to mainstream, although they're as rooted in size as anything else. But about the sizes, so... I think I have it pretty accurate because in the aforementioned Chinamar series, you have a, a way to really ascertain it really clinically because they have such things as Akashic field tapping devices. Actually, coincidentally, in inner Earth, they go uh, they go there and use this and seize a section of the Earth. So that's that's going to tell you. The, oh, not just that, but it's in it's in real time. And then you, they made the uh, um, estimate that it's between 2,300 and 2,500 kilometers deep. Uh, that's in miles, some like 1,500, 1, I think. And so there's your answer in terms of that. But by the way, just to go back to the evidence part, because this is pretty important. So at least make a highlight reel because there are so many. So <laughs> the, the seismology, how, how it works is they have, two types of waves and that's that's the only thing that you can get any read on the inside of the planet because these earthquakes actually penetrate all the way to the other side of the earth and then they have these seismology i mean um, seismographs all over the earth they have these stations and they can get data on any earthquake and they see that the first uh, waves to penetrate are always the um, longitudinal or P waves, and uh, they are the fastest. And also, these goes, for example, if you were to hit like a slab of rock with a hammer, these would also it would also undergo these two types of waves. I mean, two ma major ones because uh, the ones that travel in 3D, for example, because you have surface waves and those are responsible for the earthquakes and devastation on the overground, but those aren't uh, what's used in seismology. What's used here is the primary that I mentioned, and those are also compression waves, and they're the fastest, and they're always the first to arrive. Uh, and you have the shear waves, or secondary, or S waves, and those are like this. And those are the second to arrive, and, and you, they use the difference between two, the two to always measure what's uh, um, the materials inside and what what's happening inside there. And they have to make many adjustments. But, but the point is, only one of these two penetrate through um, all states of matter, which is the first one. They, they go through, look at solid and gaseous. And the second ones, because they only go through solid, they got to the conclusion that the core is liquid. This is the inception of that notion. And the, the reality, of course, is that it's gaseous. Um, but yeah, and also, this was interesting that they found, um, judging from earthquakes that originated in the exact same spot, they found without any doubt that the inner core, which is the one that they consider solid, which, you know, there is something there because of how earthquakes penetrate. So they do get some data, except they, they base it on this false theory of, you know, solid earth. So the materials uh, that they consider are there are completely uh, wrong and unproven and just you know false but anyway so yeah the 
Um, uh, so let me think. <laughs> I lost my train of thought. No, you're good. Was, you, you're talking about how the earthquake, there must be something solid. You're talking about the gaseous oh, yeah, yeah. center. Yeah. Yeah, they got to the um, conclusion that the inner core moves. It rotates faster than the mantle because of all earthquakes that originate in the same place. And that shouldn't be possible, but according to their theory, because they're thinking that it's, it's very slight interplay, but that's for many reasons that's impossible as well because of um, the, the difference in material. So for convection, there will have to be a bigger difference. Uh, the, the liquid layer and the solid layer are 23% are uh, difference in uh, density, according to them. And that alone should prohibit convection. But anyway, so they got to through the uh, S waves to the conclusion that it's liquid. And then the earthquakes also, they say that they only go to 150 kilometers, whereas they go to 650. And that's confounded them because they were certain that you couldn't have an earthquake that, that low because the of the you know plates being too soft at that depth so that shows the fact that you had 8.3 magnitude at 600 plus kilometers shows that it's really not far off and that it's it, it past the 12 kilometer spot that we reached you you can't really make any prediction at all not not any safe one anyway and they say that the temperature inside the inner core is as hot as the sun and that it's um, an effect from 4.5 billion years ago because they're going by their theory of accretion where particles just hit each other. And by the way, they, they say also that it's made of nickel and iron, which is impossible to get an alloy that clean. You would, not just that, but the way you get nick, uh, nickel and iron and these heavy metals in the galaxy is only through dying stars. And, to, and they got to the conclusion that the Earth is... Uh, eight is a very dense in the middle, 8.5 per uh, grams per centi per cubic centimeter, because of the orbit. They judged the mass from its orbit, which is roughly correct. But they then they got the average density, and so they and they knew the density on the surface, which is about 2.75, and then they got to the, you know, realization so called that in the center it has to be super uh, heavy, and they they only materials that could they could you know. Hamphis, there were nickel liner, but they're really rare, and you're not, never going to find them in such pure form ever. Plus, the the amounts involved are so um, unproportional to the rest of the solar system. It's it's absurd. But I don't even know. So the, they also say that the pressure in in the core in the middle is 3.4 million times more than on the surface, and all these things that that the heat from the center is a remnant of 4.5 billion years ago from yeah when it heated up and it's still that's what drives all these you know magnetic fields and everything today and yeah where should i go next uh, well hang on let's just okay. slow down for a second yeah <laughs> well for, first of all um all the facts and the data is absolutely uh crucial as far as proving what you're talking about um but we also we don't want to. I don't want to spend too much time on the numbers because um, it, you might we might lose some people you know who aren't at, who don't understand all that lingo. Um, so let's go back to the gaseous 
center that some people call like the central sun, the inner earth sun. We've heard of a lot of the experiencers and testimonies that come back and talk about the inner earth having its own sun, you know, and and then if you if you take the the planet as a, more of a donut shaped pear shape, uh, it's like a torus field, right? Uh, there would be what some people call a black hole or a sun, another star in the middle of our planet. And it's it's no different than the sun uh, on the surface. It just exists within. And we completely have a misunderstanding of, of the planet itself. And we've talked about this with Jock Doubleday uh, when he when we had him on the show talking about the expanding Earth theory and and how it would actually it's constantly expanding and, and the science behind that. But uh, so what are your thoughts on that sun, on that actually being a sun that that is allowing life that, that is hosting life within the planet? Of course. Yeah. And just quickly, before I get to the sun on the expanding Earth theory, just the most absurd, you know, the most striking aspects are the fact that, well, Pangea couldn't have been a thing because they think that it's only on one side, which would have destabilized. That's not how any plan works. So it would have, uh, you know, destabilized the center of gravity from the center of rotation. But and also uh, the fact that the if you try to make a jigsaw out of the continents, they never fit unless you shrink the, the whole uh, planet way, way down. And the, the this is the most telling fact is that the crust, as I mentioned before, the thickness of the crust under the ocean is so much smaller, which you know suggests that it's it was there was a rift that just got bigger as the planet expanded. Mm. It's the only conclusion. So anyway, about the inner sun, yeah, it's you can't say it's a black hole, but only if you also make the caveat that it, it emanates just as much as it attracts, and also just to fast forward way. Um, um, a lot in that uh, science book, which, by the way, was written by a guy who does this, is a has a bachelor's degree in geology. So not just geology, but also an engineer. So the engineers you'll find are much more truthful about these things than universities because they actually have to come up with results, not just theories. And so the the about the sun. Yeah, and uh, not just the sun, inner sun, but also the reason why it's hollow and yeah, it's not com really comparable to the outer sun, but it's definitely a sun. It's the fact that the the way planets are formed, really, I should I have to mention is that is called protoplanetary disks, and they're vortices, and they're only they've only been observable since 1994 through Hubble, and they were noticed around new stars, and it turns out that planets and stars form at the same time and that yeah they are first of all only a disk so only seemingly in two dimensions but uh, then they did actually they accounted for so the the reason why they begin to start with is differences in temperature uh, in density of the gas of the gases because they did, did get the fact that it happened in nebulas. The, they are the stellar nurseries, right? But they have no idea about. The, so the theory of accretion, first of all, anything that's any particle that's bigger than one centimeter is going to go towards the, the sun because that's the biggest object. And the all the tests, laboratory tests they made with particles, either came out that the particles, if they came to slow one to the other, would not merge, or they would just shatter. 
and that's obvious they're just dic uh, logic dictates that but anyway so how the, about how they're actually made so the the whole gestalt of the universe actually is vortices or turbulence i guess they're the most you know elegant the most energy saving and the most long-lasting right and right it's it's just it's interesting we have information coming forward now about these uh a lot it's it's coming through the akashic records and, and channelers and stuff but about the blueprinters and the, the universe like so it's it's yeah it's not necessarily done naturally like we thought there's actually people or groups terraforming these planets and uh I, this is a major theory at this point but we can't ignore that this is new information coming in and uh this this blueprinter term is coming up over and over and over again and it, it makes perfect sense to me that there is an intelligent design behind all of it. And it's not just a random act of science. And uh, this is, that's a whole other topic, but uh, let's get back into, into the planet. I want to start, I want to start talking about some of the, the civilizations that we've heard about and how, and how like even the Germans ended up making their way down there and what they discovered. And let's get into some some of that information. Of course. Yeah. And yeah, you just to finish up with the sun, that it's you can call it yeah, black hole, but the main point is that the inside the center point is responsible for everything that's on the surface. Like I said, it's a you could say it's vortex, but the point is there's a huge gap there in the middle. And the also well, I'm just going to skip the science if you want to know about the civilization. So apparently, according to Diane Robbins and the Aurelia Jones, they are the two authors that apparently telepathically communicate with both Telosians, which are the inner Earth city from just under Mount Chesa, which is very well documented as far as these places go, and with a couple of hollow Earth links too or intraterrestrials, I guess, but yeah, the apparently, so the Agartha network, which is the cities that you find inside the mantle are apparently uh, called, um, yeah, the Agartha network also used to be called Shambhala the Lesser, but, and they are made of up of 120 cities or so I heard, but also other sources say that there are hundreds of civilizations. So, but yeah, at least uh, this network apparently is 120, and they're mostly made of hyperboreans, overwhelmingly, which, according to Chinamar's books, were on Earth about 50,000 years ago. And they made so all these peoples, like the Atlanteans and hyperboreans, underwent a change. They basically can't remain couldn't remain on the surface because the surface more and more went into the into the frequencies of 3D, and it used to be much more interchangeable before. And there were even wars fought over the less remaining portals as they got as the rift as the chasm got smaller and smaller. But yeah, and apparently many of these peoples either went elsewhere or they departed or they you know absconded inside the earth and where they could continue because this is important to mention that as you go inside certainly past the mantle you are fully in the etheric realm which is also known as 4d but you also already feel the mark 
gradually as you go deeper. So by the time you're near the end, you're, you have much more elevated, you know, states and feelings when you're inside. But Correct. so your question. Oh, no, I, just, I was agreeing with you. Yeah. That's okay. All. Yeah. And yeah, the other thing, other than the hyperboreans, the apparently there are also four Lemurian outposts inside Earth and two Atlanteans. So not very many, but apparently there are Atlanteans inside Hollow Earth as well. But as far as Romania goes, they are mainly populated by Dacians, who were the peoples that are the people that's the most famous around here. And they there's a lot of hype about it. But what's not known, and by the way, many this goes for many other civilizations that that you find no remnants, for example, of their writings, it could very well be that that's because they went inside Earth. And it's well known that many North American peoples know for sure that they, their ancestors were from inner Earth, and not just them, but Eskimos too. And yeah, the, the Dacians underneath Romania have many cities and they're interconnected and you can travel from one to the other uh, without needing any tunnels. You just raise the frequency of operation of the ship, which they're very advanced in. Because they had so much freedom to just evolve un, you know, unencumbered by the surface, and you won't find any of them who are you know, envious of the surface people, although they are very open to collaboration, always willing to do right. it, and especially now, more than ever. So, yeah, it's so there's a lot to unpack. So we can, if we just go back to Talos, or Telos, uh, under Mount Shasta and the Agartha network, uh, there's information that claims that that start that that starts as as um, how should I say this one mile beneath the surface as near as one mile beneath the surface actually under Mount Shasta is where actually that uh, city starts and there's like five levels to that city and as you get deeper it expands and you know there's all kinds of fantastic stuff happening there uh, and they claim that Agartha network is comprised of hundred plus cities that are all connected via a tunnel system which is uh like type type of a maglev type of uh, transport or train but it's like an uh it's actually pushed by like a cushion of air so it never touches the sides and uh travels up to three thousand miles per hour and also they're not just inner earth but they are also uh communicating galactically and and coming and going from the planet and they call and the reason they're able to uh, remain undetected is because they travel they use a technology what they call interdimensional shift technology and it allows them to somehow shift and remain undetected when they're coming and going from the planet it's all very interesting uh what kind of information does any of your research align with that stuff yep you're pretty much dead on with the depth i was also curious about telos uh, telos i say about how deep it is but yeah, one mile is where it starts, and it goes apparently not very deep, two more miles. But yeah, it's on five levels, and they're made up of Lemurians, who were was a huge chunk of land in the Pacific, and California was just at the rim of it. And both Lemuria and Atlantis went down after they. Well, I'm just now I'm just saying her information, uh, which is Diane Robbins, but. Yeah, apparently the Lemurians and Atlanteans uh, warred and 
because of how nasty that war was, they were, you know, that led to the destruction and the sinking, but it was gradual. It's not like Plato said, like overnight. And so the millions of Lemurians that were surface asked the permission of, at the time, mostly Hyperboreans in the Garza network to have this place for themselves, this place under Mount Shasta, which they had apparently to drain out the magma from the lava tubes for it. And yeah, they were allowed it, but they only managed to transport uh, 25,000 people. And apparently some of the priests and elders had to remain just to ease the, you know, the mass exodus of the remaining, the people who are fated to die there. And apparently Old Lang Syne, they sang that and it's one of their songs and not the Irish, they just got, you know, uh, inherited it. But, and only 25,000 made it to Telos. And by now they are up to either 1.2 or 1.5 million. You have, you hear both numbers. And there are five levels there, like you said, the first two are mainly administrative. That's where most of the population is in their schools. And they are not too dissimilar in that, in that you also, you'll also learn as you're a very young child. But unlike us, they are very you know, insistent on this, that they basically don't age and they choose when to die. Right. And their lifetimes are go up to ten go into to tens of thousands of years, which means that some of them are actually, you know, uh, lived in the real Lemuria, and have mm-hmm. memories of there. But also, there's the fact that when you're in Earth, you're probably not subject to the veil, which is you know the limiting of the DNA strands, which also had its good reasons. But before that, so. Um, yeah, you're not so, therefore you remember your past life, so it's not such a big deal anyway. But if you want, I can go more into the Telos culture. Right. Well, it's interesting. Like I, I've I've read that they like you were right. Like they had to move to Inner Earth because of the surface dropping into three D, dropping into the third dimension. And they uh, back whenever they did migrate there, they were actually utilizing some of these tunnels, these magma tubes, lava tubes, or whatever. Um, to bring air down into their city, but they've since had to close those off because the air is now so polluted. So they have their own way of providing oxygen, which is their own ecosystem, uh, very similar to exactly how it works on the surface, but it's just more pure in essence. And the fact that they're able to live as long as they do has everything to do with the birthing process also, which we have all wrong on the surface. And, you know, they do the water birth. It only takes three months. And as soon as they find out the mother is is pregnant, they put her in a chamber for three days and, and they just basically play all these beautiful sounds and frequencies and tones and these positive words to uh, code the DNA of the child. So when it's born, it's it's not born with any trauma. And that has a that plays a huge part into the life uh, expectancy of them. Well, yeah, you're right about how they birth and stuff like that. But they are also, you know, it's hard to keep track because they sometimes they say that drinking water is what gives them super longevity. And sometimes they say that it's because of they're so careful with the, the food. And other times it's, they say that it's just a matter of uh, 
healthy thinking, you know. So it's it's basically all of these things, I would guess. But yeah, about the what I found interesting, you mentioned the pregnancy. They first of all only get pregnant when they plan way way ahead, months ahead. This apparently is a genetic defect of of the surface dwellers that we get, you know, unexpected pregnancies and not just this, but they have two types of relationships like the couples first they only start with what they call bond relationships which are which can last indefinitely but it's agreed that you can at any point just mutually agree to separate and remain friends but and there's many couples that invite us in the first two levels uh, and by the way I, they have a pyramid that houses 50,000 or so people but and the second type of relationship is a committed one which from which apparently there's no divorce but before that you can go hundreds of years in each other's company and they their sexual union is always involving all the chakras unlike apparently ours which only do the first two and uh, yeah the the planning of the incarnation is also a very long process and they know exactly what soul they're inviting in because, you know, they have to be careful. For example, just think of this super long life means you have great, 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 great uh, grandsons. So, and also space is limited in the inner earth caverns. That's another big aspect. So you, you have to be careful, but yeah, apparently they don't even have a money system everything's taken care of they only have to work four to five uh, hours every few days every five days which is like 20 to 25 hours a week but whenever you you have you're expecting a child you are excused of that and ha you can spend years a couple of years just uh, giving all the attention to the child and right. yeah well, it's a yeah, just a completely different lifestyle, obviously. Um, actually, Aaron's getting ready to go to Mount Shasta next week, right? He's gonna so go into a conference tomorrow. Tomorrow, tomorrow oh, the, yeah, it's this weekend. <laughs> going to a conference there, um, and there, there, there's a guy named Lowell or Lowell Harvey Prentice Lowell. Lowell Johnson, who's gonna be there, who I've uh, seen some interviews of him online and he claims he went inside to, he claims he was on a hike in Mount Shasta and this Telosian being like in a white robe appeared and like invited him into Telos and he physically, physically went there, not just, uh, not just Ashley or, or, um, his spirit like he physically went there and this guy gave him a tour around the whole city and, he tells the whole story and it's, it's amazing. Um, mm -hmm. It's fascinating. Right. And and that's He's actually at this conference. So I'm going to get to see see him talk and I'm, I'm hoping to get to meet him and, you know, get him on the show. Hopefully. And have him take you to where he was brought in. So yeah, I, <laughs> I'll ask. Yeah, that would be amazing. Well, that's actually an interesting point to bring up because uh, you can't just go and find some entrance down to the Agartha network. Maybe you can in a, a certain area to an extent, but you have to be, from my understanding, you have to be invited based on the purity of your intention. Mm. 
and like and and your essence, I guess. So and there's certain areas, specific locations where you can go and meditate and get into that state and basically ask for permission. Uh, and I, I know that doesn't just exist in Mount Shasta. There's other places in the world, apparently, um, where you can do this. And I think, uh, Daniel, didn't you did you say one time in our conversations that there was a location in Wisconsin that you could do this? Actually, it's in Yosemite Park. Okay. Yeah, it's very tempting, at least for me, because it's in the fifth book that it's called Inside the Earth in the Transylvania series. And it's one of the three hollow earth trips and he has two in inner earth and of course when i'm talking about hollow earth i'm talking about the big you know gap there in the big hollow which is i should also mention approximate as the size of venus even though it's not really if you consider the thickness of the mantle but because as i mentioned you're in a slightly higher plane more elevated then it, you it that's the best approximation and because it goes, as I said, higher in dimension towards the center, the approximation of the astro or 5D is about the size of Mars. And then the 60 is about the size of Mercury. And then seven is roughly the size of the moon, which is the, that's the size of the point of singularity that is responsible for the implementation of everything. And by the way, it, that's where the spirit of the Earth resides. And it's masculine, uh, it's not feminine. The feminine side is the breathing, living part, which is Gaia. And, you know, they have to work together. But he definitely got this sure sensation, you know, sure knowing, sure download. But, but and also when he, Radu Chinamar, would glean this information, it wouldn't just be through those holographic caching devices. He also had a helmet that could you know, help him synthesize this information and would read it, it would be telepathic. So, and it would just be guided by thought and yeah, very intuitive. Uh, but this is from a town that's very near uh, the surface. So you don't have to go that deep. But yeah, I wanted to mention that. And oh yeah, so about Lowell, yeah, I found him the, the most credible or top two definitely of all the inner earth accounts. He just rails off, you know, what you want to hear, it doesn't go into, you know, meandering. And yeah. I have absolutely no doubt that he went there and that he, unfortunately, he only went there once. He met with them a second time, but yeah, apparently he is now very gifted at sensing every little change and he sees with 5D overlays as well. So definitely would be maybe a good guess for you guys. But um, yeah, so what was, what was your we were, we, were, we were talking about Yosemite, that area oh, there. <laughs> Of course. Yeah, yeah. It's I'm convinced that you can triangulate the position just based on the descriptions of the houses because it's not such a big area. And apparently it's a reservation of Native Americans. And they were the Americans, you know, their the government, their special the black ops wanted to find out more about the about this portal because they knew they had a portal as far back as 1776 and they wanted to you know find out more power the only they only sent the of all the people they sent there the parapsychologists and such only one managed to go through see so they weren't really happy with it so they sent these two romanians Radu Chinamarin's friend and they yeah they were apparently these native americans the reason why i think it's a very approachable is that 
the they were very humble, very welcoming, and they knew ahead of time. So it's not like you can you know go there and demand anything. You're gonna be expected there, like you said, you know, and that's one of the ways you can get in. But it's not the only way because there are also portals. And if you want, I can go into the entry, the modes of entry inside. The modes of entry, you said? Because there's more than one, yes. Well, yeah. Okay, so let's talk about that. Obviously, you can prop. It's some sort of portal. Uh, there may be a physical entrance. Then we have the poles, which is a completely different story. That's what accounts for all these old explorers and how they found their way in the inner earth. And even Admiral Byrd and some other guy, you know, flying 1700 miles past the pole, he should have been at a known landmass, but he wasn't because when you're going around that curve, you don't even realize that you're going around the curve of the crust because it's such a large surface area. You think you're still on the surface. You don't even know that you've gone upside down and that's where they found, that's where they found themselves and gravity, gravity doesn't change. And that's where he talks about the land beyond the poles. That's what he was referring to. And that's where flat earthers think that he's talking about some ice wall, but that's not really the case. He, he really just went around that curve. But tell us about the other modes of getting in, please. Yeah, the most famous one is the polar entrances. And you also have many schools of thought there, but I've come to find that it's more of a portal, not an opening as a physical one and it's um, subtle in that you're suddenly gonna see animals or vegetation that wouldn't belong there and you're gonna feel warm winds and obviously you're gonna see the inner sun which is static although that i mean it rotates but it remains the same position mostly um and it's only two-thirds in intensity of our sun and that the uh, some of the books like goddess of advatabar say that it's physical but i think that pretty much disgrace the only thing that you you could argue that that gives this because chinamar goes into detail how it's a mobius strip and that yeah you're not going to have the only physical opening inside are the very wavy and very rare cave systems that go to a certain depth but very rarely do they reach to the other side but anyway about the poles the only argument that i found for it for the opening that is you can see is by uh, one of the two women who write on telos that apparently in the year 2000 they placed a magnetic uh, force field there and they shielded it, they camouflaged it. I guess it's not such a big, you know, the step to take because of how even we have, um, you know, such technology in the SSP and even the Buttigieg base is protected by such cloaking technology. But other, I'm still gonna go with <clears throat> the theory that is just a, a portal and then, and that you're not gonna get flipped or anything because it's just a, that's seem really realistic. However, there is definitely most definitely something going on there because <clears throat> that is physical as well. Because the of the tidal waves, which imagine the Arctic Ocean is like a bathtub. If you make one perturbation in one end, you, you would expect that to be reflected on the other. But from the data that a certain scientist collected in the seventies and re, you know, collected, made sure there's no errors he 
found that the only explanation that is that there's a half half a million square kilometer area that is very shallow, whereas it's considered that the North Pole has a few kilometers of water and only covered in ice. So yeah, there's that's just something about the poles. But the other ways to get in are portals, which vary very a lot in uh, duration. It can be a few minutes up to thousands of years, but that's rare. And these can look di very different. And they can be technology-based too, like the ones in the Buchej books. They, that's how that was, was left there by advanced extraterrestrials. And they still stand, but you have portals that lead you from space, from here to the surface. You have ones that lead you to the mantle and to hollow earth. But we already know that because we have, you know, what they're called, what are they called? Jump rooms, right? To Mars. Right. So mm -hmm. it's not, not a big surprise there. But also, the I guess the other interesting way to get in is the overlapping of, I guess, frequencies between the two planes, which translates through sometimes through places that are considered haunted, like forests. But also Bermuda Triangle apparently is one of those places. And it's the way that King Arthur got to visit the island of wise men. And that's depicted in, uh, you know, illustrations. And that, yeah, Avalon apparently is a place in Hollow Earth. So that's just, those are the main interways. And that's, and that's interesting too, because a lot of the, um, some people say that a lot of the biblical references to like the Garden of Eden and stuff were actually, exi actually existed in inner earth. And, uh, it's, I don't know if there's any truth to that, but we, we hear these theories. Oh, yeah. Well, there's absolutely no question in my mind that you do get a whole town retreating there, but it takes a collective to do it. And it's very well explained in the sixth book in the series. So you heard about Shambhala. It's mm -hmm. a conglomeration of places, not so much, but it's also considered a capital. And it started 120,000 years ago, but originally it was just very advanced cities on the surface of the earth back when you could have 4D and above, you know, settlements there. But after the, you know, difference got less, got more and more, and there was a division, which culminated at the last cataclysm, uh, some say 12, some say 13,000 years ago. Well, actually, it, by by uh, twenty seven thousand years, it was already completely in inner Earth. I mean, in Hollow Earth, Shambhala. But it's not the only one that went inside, uh, and you just have to apparently put many minds, concentrate them on just uh, wanting to do that. And Shambhala is circular. The first ring is four D, and then it gets increasingly higher. And I don't know if it's there, but there's also that library of Portologos, which is famous and the, apparently it's one of a kind in the universe. I don't know if that, you know, just uh, flaunting it, but uh, they they give a lot of good reasons there that they have also portals going through throughout the universe and they collect everything on these rare crystal tablets that are uh, everlasting that you can 
tap into your past lives there you you just sit inside a crystal and you go anywhere you want and this is what it's cool about that place and other hollow earth places that and the akashic device as well that you it's the best most interactive and most effective way to learn anything is when you get all this uh, you know feedback as well in terms of visuals and also cognitive knowing you know downloading of information but and you guide it with just your mind and uh, that we're being deprived of such you know learning and also they say that they have art and theater and the way i interpret that is they only make certain they make certain parameters to generate real movies because i sincerely doubt that they would have the patience or the you know uh, willingness to make or watch movies because they would just be fake so they, they probably just generate these real scenarios right. to watch them I've, before, I've heard, i think i've heard that sorry to interrupt but they, they uh -huh. that's what we would almost understand as the holodeck in star trek um they're able to cre like create a movie and actually become part of it that's the way i've heard it described and apparently they like to spend a lot of time playing on the holodeck uh, is what they would call it down there as far as entertainment goes uh going back to well for one shambhala from my understanding is like the innermost city nearest the core i guess we could say and and like the deepest and then like the agartha network is much closer to the surface than we would even imagine as far as from what i understand and then uh, you, you talk about tap, tapping into this Akashic record. They also talk about a highly spiritualized computer network uh, that they use uh, that connects all the subsidies and even gives them galactic communication. But they, this apparently this computer system is amino acid based. I don't even understand that, but that's the way they describe it. And it allows them also to tap into the Akashic records for, for personal growth reasons, if there's something that they would need. It's a very, and it also like gives them like uh, lets them know if they have a vitamin or, or nutrient deficiency. It's a very sophisticated underground computer, like an internet, basically. But it's, I guess, more of an organic style. I don't really understand that. Can you, do you have any better understanding of that computer network? Well, yeah, I read that it's, they pretty much stop at amino acids. They don't go into depth. That's why the Chinamar series is by far the best, is because they, tell it from the point of view of you know the experiencer whereas these are basically channeled messages then you're they're never going to compare as much as i would say that as far as channel messages these are really seem really legit so they don't have you know they don't squeeze in any agenda at all but but yeah that's why those are the best romanian series but about the technology well the, first of all it's telonium is the name of the uh the mineral the metal that they store this uh all this vast knowledge on but yeah and um so i'm not sure exactly i know they they're interconnected like you said and they they have trade relations through those tunnel systems but as far as um the information but i i you did mention uh shambhala and i want to make this uh as clear as possible so the agartha network is com 
is only located in the mantle, which is like this, and the hollow is not dissimilar to how it would be on the surface, and that's where Shambhala is as well. And it is you you have to see it from a certain angle to even see the curvature, the inner curvature, but you do see it sometimes. But yeah, and that's the most elevated because it's fully 4D and above. But you do have many cities, and apparently the land is even bigger than what it is on Earth because obviously Earth is mainly covered by, I mean, the surface, because it's covered by a lot of water. And there, even though the surface is a little smaller, three quarters of it is land, and that's multiple right. sources saying that. Mm -hmm. And, but yeah, if you want, I, I can go into what well, the, let's, go ahead let's talk about okay so this is all fascinating yeah i've heard the same thing three quarters land on a quarter water they do have their own oceans and rivers and some of those rivers continue to outer earth like the tigris and euphrates river actually go inner earth also i've heard um and it's like it i don't understand all of it but apparently it's a lot of it a lot of the rivers down there are actually the names of the river on the surface because it's actually the same river in a lot of these places we don't know where that water is going it just keeps going and like that's exactly where it's going but we hear these accounts of these animals that apparently are supposed to be extinct that are living and still existing in inner earth not only existing but they're tame like a saber-toothed tiger would actually be tame that you could play with you know and then the gigantic trees that they claim are a thousand up to a thousand feet tall 250 feet in diameter they go for miles like this is all amazing stuff and some of these trees some of these logs are actually found floating out into our oceans and they don't know where these trees are come from and they even wash up on banks sometimes and they have massive mass these massive trees these logs that like don't have any place in our reality that are washing them up on the shore in certain land masses uh this all that type of stuff is really fascinating to me and i, I don't know if you can add to that at all yeah yeah so you have a certain event in 2007 it's called the arctic calving in the it was the first time that the northwestern passage was open and usually you get 50 to 60 new species in the ocean every year but that year it was 1500 and the next year i should say and you have certain animals like the ross gull and the type of ox that go northward in the winter mm -hmm. and they don't have especially the gull doesn't have special insulation at all and then you have bears foxes butterflies and mosquitoes that go above the 80 degree parallel which uh, they don't for in the case of mosquitoes they aren't seen for hundreds of kilometers south of that so and also of course there's uh, temperatures everyone reports warm winds as you go north as far back as the 19th century so you can't blame it on global warming or anything right but um yeah you have the about the i i don't know if you have rivers continuing I, I would have to, I mean, I would it'd start to wrap your mind around that because, but definitely that the water plays a major role. And that's where obviously, because it don't, it's, it's considered that the water came from meteorites and stuff, but even the, you know, most dank meteorite only has so much, it's just not a lot. And um, the, 
they actually from 600,000 seismograms, the University of Washington managed to detect waves crashing inside and they officially acknowledge the fact that they have an ocean there that's at least the size of the Arctic, which is their conservative estimate. And that actually accounts for the wobble of the Earth orbit. But also, just as a fun curiosity in the book about the solid Earths and color, uh, it says that the precession of the equinox is also another myth that needs busting because you know what it is, right? When the the Earth uh, has that extra spin, not, not just on one axis, but on the other, another, and it's uh, considered that the moon is responsible for it. So that's why it's tilted like that. And it takes 26,000 years or so, a platonic year to get back to the original alignment of the stars. But what they don't account for is the fact that the moon can't have that much pull the calculations that stone it up, but also that that idea was postulated back in Copernicus's days, who considered that the sun was static. They had no idea about the galaxy. So what that turns out to be, the precession of the equinox, is only the movement of the whole solar system inside the galaxy, which it apparently travels at 828,000 kilometers um, an hour. So that's the misconception there. Interesting. Oh, interesting. So, yeah, I, going back to it getting warmer as you go north, and a lot of these old accounts talk about that, obviously, and animals going there, migrating there, where are they going? Um, and we have even accounts of Eskimos, um, like the, the naked Eskimos, they would call them. Like, they get so far north, they're wearing, like, tribal clothes, like we would imagine Native Americans wearing in North America, uh, in the heat, you know, and we've had, we have accounts of, of them too. And, and they've come across bases where they can tell our settlements where they can tell they, these Eskimos are migrating North. And why would it make sense for them to migrate North if it's as cold as we're taught? Right. Mm -hmm. So all of that's very fascinating. Then we have the Siberian mastodon or woolly mammoth bed of bones uh, that they think is uh they they all died in some cataclysm at one time and they were extremely well preserved even down to like some of the meat being fresh and some of the the food in the stomach not even being digested yet they think that it was so well preserved but what's happening is this is actually a washout from one of the inner earth rivers and some of these woolly mammoths that exist down there when they die on the on the riverbanks that they end up washing out and they and they all can pile up basically in Siberia. And when they're finding these woolly mammoths that they think are so well preserved, they're actually not new. They're actually fresh. They're not just preserved. That's why they're, that's why they're well preserved. Not, right. Yeah. Cause they're actually, they just died recently. Yeah. And then the red, I don't know if, do you know anything about the accounts of the red snow that a lot of explorers claim to see uh, when they get to the poles, red snow, uh, uh, no, but that does remind me of Aurora Borealis, how that's another misconception. Yeah, no, yeah. Explain, well, I'll explain the red snow, then you explain the Aurora sure. Borealis. So this red snow is documented. It's you, you, every Anybody who's been to the poles has experienced this red snow. Apparently what it's from is there's millions of acres of flowers and plant life in inner earth, right? Uh, that's just part of the ecosystem. Well, uh, once a year when they when they're... Uh, releasing pollen the pollen in particular is red 
And this is just, you know, I don't know how much pollen it would amount to, but that pollen is making it out to the surface and it, it mixes with the snow. And when it falls, it's red. That, yeah, that adds up. And also, and, yeah. Oh, did Sorry. you finish that? Well, well, I just thought, and there's actually been studies on that snow and it, uh, this is, this is the actual mainstream scientists determined that yes, there is uh, plant life. This is plant life they're finding in the snow. So that would make perfect sense. They're even, so mainstream science is even confirming that. Yeah. They're, they're, yeah. But so yeah, please, that, yeah, tell us about the uh, Aurora Borealis. That's something that actually fascinates me. Yeah. And uh, for sure. And one last thing that since we're on the Northern civilizations, there was this case where vanishing uh, Norse, because you know that the Vikings discovered the Americas before Columbus. And apparently around 15th century, they had this colony in Greenland and they lived around that place in Iceland for 500 years, just very well off. And then all of a sudden, a huge colony in Greenland disappears without a single trace. And the, the guy who was from another colony visited it and uh, saw that their livestock was there and alive and well. So they had no signs of violence or anything, which kind of leads to, you know, one or two conclusions. But, and apparently they were spotted by the Eskimos when they asked them, but um, yeah, the, so the auroras officially, they're considered to be charged particles from the sun, which are colliding with um, the atmosphere, but very high up, around 80 to 400 kilometers with the atoms uh, in the atmosphere. And that's what lights up the place. But actually, there's a few problems. First of all, you have the magnetic uh, shield field which shields earth and you shouldn't normally get any such um you know colliding of particles for about 15000 kilometers but you can then they then say that it's the van allen, van allen belt but even that one is hundreds of kilometers taller but also it's way too you're never going to get such a discharge down here and also but that's just one of it um for example, you have they they pulsate at both poles at the same time, which if it were the sun, it would be obviously only lit up on one uh, pole. But yeah. this, there have been studies made, and um, there's there's no question that it's only come it's it can only be that it comes from the interior, and the, there's the fact that they're observable in many other planets. Saturn, Jupiter, just two that come to mind. And they're very strong there as well. And by the way, I should mention that Saturn, the hottest spot ever recorded on Saturn, was near the, the, its South Pole. And it has constant warm winds there. But so, yeah, the only explanation really is that there's an inner sun. And also, the, they have NASA had balloon-shaped antennas that were meant to detect neutrinos, which are very, the smallest particles that they know. And they were flying at 40 kilometers high, and they detect, de detected high-energy particles that were 70,000 70, times stronger than the ones that are generated in our most advanced particle accelerators. And the problem with the, the hypothesis that they come from this, they, they could ever, oh, and this balloon only senses, was meant only to sense things coming off the earth. 
and the idea that that solar radiation, that solar particles or, or wind or anything ricochets from the earth, it doesn't doesn't hold water because any neutrinos that hit the earth rapidly dissipate. So you could never find them uh, so high, uh, you know, reflected 40 kilometers up in the air. So all these things, obviously, and the warm winds and everything else point to the inner sun that gives sustenance and that manages to evaporate, is hot enough to evaporate water. And the dimensions of it are subject to, you know, interpretation, but I I'm going to go with Chinamar that it's between seven and 800 kilometers in diameter. Um, what is the inner? The inner sun. Okay. So the neutrinos, from my understanding, they can pass through matter through anything, right? But you're telling me that they, they don't actually pass through, they dissipate when they hit the earth? No, I'm saying that this balloon that was sent by NASA, it only was meant to detect particle neutrinos that were coming off the icy ground. Right. Yeah, I understand and that. Yeah. So yeah, it's impossible for them to have been from external. It has to be from the Earth. And I see what you're saying. It was seventy thousand times more powerful than the uh, you know most advanced particle accelerator is not nothing. You know. So. Yeah. Right. There's no right. other way to explain that. There's exactly. No other way to explain that. Yeah. Right. So yeah, that I've always and I've heard that before, but I've never heard it explained and why the northern lights appear as as they do coming from inner earth. So it's directly related to the sun down there, you know, uh, yeah. which is sense. a feature in all the planets. And I really uh, had to have have to add this that the Andromedans dictated this to Collier, which is cool to have you know real ET like first hand information that all the planets and all the suns are hollow. And apparently there's a town called Kalnogor that was left by Lyrans and it's in inner earth. And there's a certain map that contains it and other cities, which kind of lends credibility to that, to that map. So there's, a, I mean, that would make sense. Like there's, if, if one planet, like if one planet is formed one way, all of them would have to be formed that way, at least within our solar system with our template, right? Because no in another universe, that template might look completely different, but here, you know, uh, it's all fascinating. Uh, where to go? There's a lot of information here. You know, the, the Telos, um, talking about the actual people that live down there, we were talking about them earlier. One of the things that struck me is they're, they're so in tune and they're so tapped in and advanced, I guess. They, they, one of the things I read was that even judgmental thoughts can hurt them physically. That's why they can't come to the surface. And I, that struck me because that it's true. Whenever you, whenever you really connected with somebody or in a relationship, you almost can read each other's mind at some point, you know, when somebody's thinking something and it has a physical effect on your body. Imagine if that was extremely heightened and you had to come to the surface and deal with an entire uh, primitive population, right? A civilization that would probably, uh, that would be very detrimental to your health. Uh, have you, have you heard this also? Oh yeah. And you don't have to go very deep to get that. Um, the so first of all, all the inner Earth people are forced to live in symbiosis just because of the nature of the place that is very subject to destruction. But still, most of the accounts, if you know, overwhelming majority, depict a very you know evolved, a refined 
civilizations that are like you say like pay attention and also they're always telepathic in inner earth they also use voice most of the time but if, when you go into the hollow it's usually uh, reserved to telepathy only but you still hear it as voice and of course this telepathy applies even to plants not alone animals which they also respect a lot more than and they do like you said about the mammoths they do maintain uh, the extinct ones that like dinosaurs and pterodactyls and stuff. Uh, and yeah, saber tooth are a feature of Telos, but they also have a huge like zoo, you could say, down in the fifth level. But what 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 did you actually bring up? Because I uh, oh, yeah. I was go ahead. The the nature of the people. Yeah. The, so there are apparently six levels. This, at, at the sixth level, you is the last one where you get uh, meetings between like trades and stuff between the intraterrestrials and humans. So the first six levels are basically reserved for humans, surface people, and that includes you know the elites and the doms and everything like that, Star Wars and everything. But past the sixth, you pretty much only have well from the account well aligned but they did apparently get manipulated as well and i know they get they seem to get all the blame ever but it was apparently the draco that made uh, deals with them as well and they they feel aggrieved and in this is uh, i don't know if you consider her a great source or not but kim gogan she says that um that the Draco manipulator and that the this network Council of Light or uh, Garth Network, whatever you want to call it, formed. Uh, they had their sort of independence day in 2019, where they formed a, a, what they call an Earth Council, and they from that point on, they only want to work with people who are well intended and who want to restore, you know, the balance, the natural law, and they they are very keen on scientists who you know want to you know, work for the manor and stuff. But uh, also, th this is a big emphasis for them, is repairing our DNA. And this doesn't come just from Kim. It also comes from Chinamar. The, the main civilization that's discussed in the book, that's 70 kilometers deep, and where he saw all these things uh, in the holographic technology, these are very keen on helping us restore DNA because apparently certain parts of humanity have have it really bad, where it's really damaged, almost irre irreparably. And not just the DNA, but also the air needs cleaning. And as far as violence, they're, oh yeah, this is interesting that they do have fleets that represent this, uh, you know, this section of the galaxy. And they call it Silver Fleet, right? Yeah, that's, that's the one made from Telos and an Atlantean city that's similarly sized under Brazil. And they have Rainbow Fleet and another one, I forget. But yeah, the if they find an offender that is beyond, you know, help, that uh, impossible to, you know, help, then they do, they, they do eliminate people. And they are very good at it. And they, of course, always have what you would call like ministers of security and defense as well. And they they it probably wouldn't take much for them to you know if they united to wipe out all the 
everything on the surface. But of course, they they don't want to do that. So right, right. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, getting into all those details, it's an, it's like as above, so below. At some point, you know, obviously, it's a lot different. Apparently, the ascension process happens a lot quicker down there because of the nature of things. Uh, but right now, everything's surfacing. You know, it's like a spiritual war, galactic war. Uh, war within whatever you know it's very interesting uh and some of the technologies uh, that they talk about uh, i heard it described that the reason that they were able to um basically discover these technologies is because we misunderstood the atom we split the atom when and what we and what we should have done instead is accelerate the atom and by accelerating the atom it changes the game and i don't understand the science behind it but that's like the the root of all their technologies is you, you have to accelerate the atom not split it you're you're actually working against yourself when you split the atom well it's true about the spin that that's what you know dictates also your frequency of vibration that but also not just that that is really such a major role in astrology as well and astronomy the spin of the planet that's really what gives for example jupiter gives off twice as much energy as it receives from the sun and they have no explanation for this and the explanation is obviously it comes from inside the extra energy and the uh, yeah the just an example of how wrong it is to base all the uh, formation of the celestial bodies on gravity as they do and a little bit on thermodynamics it, instead of spin is that it took them 10 attempts to land their first probe on the moon and it was completely trial and error and they still haven't learned a lesson apparently i mean the ssps have of course but yeah um and again i go on a tangent yes, <laughs> sorry, I, I was talking about the accelerating the atom and you were and i guess you correlated that with the spin um, I don't know exactly where you were going with that, but um, well, I was talking about the technologies that they have. Um, I'm not sure where you were going. Well, with that. well, the in terms of the atom spin, yeah, that's how it translates. For example, whenever you enter a portal or enter the place of transition in the, near the poles, is just your atom spin faster, and that's raise your frequency of vibration which is often mentioned but it's true like that's what separates the different densities you know that's and that's also what makes telosians able to live so long mainly in, other than the purity of the water and everything and uh that they uh, after they fell you know they raised back up to 5d and they're apparently it's very fun to in, to be interchangeable like that and of course we know that syrians are like that um Arcturians, they don't just aren't limited to one density. And yeah, that's all I know about the atom and the spinning. Right. Um, well, this has been absolutely fascinating. I mean, we've covered a yeah. lot already. Um, I'm going to share a few pictures just to just to go over what we were uh, talking about earlier, as far as the shape of the planet and stuff, just for, to give the audience a visual. Um, but my computer's not actually working right now like it's literally not working oh there it goes <laughs> um yeah so uh as far as the shape of the planet which i find very interesting let me screen let me share my screen um and also there's a if, I, if you want i can cover black goo the black goo connection 
the black goo connection yes yeah absolutely let me let me show this picture real quick and then we'll um okay oh yeah i know the one of course it's like extremely tiny here. oh there it goes <laughs> there you go. um so apparently this is the a computer generated model of the earth's actual shape shows its shape is like a pear um, which is interesting because if you look at that and then you take this image of the Van Allen belt or the magnetic sphere from above, how it's all wonky looking um, like that. Well, if it, if it was actually a perfect sphere in the middle, this would all be perfect also. But if you look, if you compare it to the shape that I just showed you, it, this makes a lot more sense. Um, as far as it, it, this would all be perfect, right? Um, this is just obviously theories because no, none of us have really been up there to look ourselves. And then according to some people, this is actually an old satellite image of the earth. And this is where the concept of the holes come from. Um, this, these images can't be, you know, when you go to Google earth now, there's it's solid, but uh, this is, I don't know what year, I think the 60s, maybe this was taken. Just something, just fascinating uh, images, sure, yeah. images to kind of go with the visuals to go with what we're talking about. And then this would be that donut shaped toroid field that we're talking about that actually exists within every planet and every person. We all, even every person carries this same shape energy field. It's like the Merkaba, uh, but it's all interconnected. And that's why something like a flat earth doesn't have a place in this universe because it's just, it goes against the template of all that is. Um, yes. And, and not, just, not just planets and people, but atoms as well. And they're apparently mini black holes. The, the ones inside the atoms and sub, uh, you know, particles, they are responsible for you being able to create your own reality at any time, you know, because you basically all these black holes, so-called, are also portals. Yes, a hundred percent. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I've heard that too. I've heard every. Yeah. Anyway, uh, go into the the black goo, and then we'll start wrapping this up. Sure. And also about it being lumpy like that. Well, Penny Bradley, who saw it from space, does say it's potato shaped, but I can't speak exactly for that. All I know is that. The sphere is the most elegant and basically the, the gestalt of the universe. It's usually spherical, but it's true that it is, you know, oblong or oblate. I mean, it's a little wider than it is tall. But the other thing was that also Penny Bradley was taught Hollowed theory by the Germans uh, on Mars in childhood. And they're probably no fools when it comes to cosmology. So, and we actually never even got into the, how the Germans made their way down there. We were supposed to talk about that earlier. Uh, that's a trip. Yeah. But well, real, that, yeah. real quick, if you don't mind, um, what is your theory on like how the Germans got there? You know, they obviously, this goes back to the book, the coming race, the Hyperboreans and the Vril and all that stuff. But they were going on these South Pole expeditions looking for something, right? Um, what's your understanding of how that happened? Well, shall I cover Black Goop first quickly? And because that's okay. a long story. 
Okay. And so before I forget, so there was a mention back when he was watching this holograms with the helmet on. The he saw that cosmic water, which apparently is a fundamental thing because the aforementioned black hole at the center of the planet is really a converter of subtle water because water is multidimensional. And he said that this water, uh, which is findable in the center there, is not potable and it is heavy and it is completely black, so it absorbs light and it has bonds that the atom bonds between hydrogen and oxygen, which by the way, oxygen weighs 88% of it. So, but it's um, different from all the other states of water. So, you know, it's different, but it's also highly charged, highly energetic. And this kind of led me to one conclusion that it's, you know, what we hear is Gaia ley lines or its communication system, you know, which is that abiotic or uh, mineral oil that's, you know, you hear that it's an M state or monatomic. And that is the one that if you drink it, it makes you really, really smart, gives you all these abilities. And it's the, you know, pure, unadulterated type that is not being uh, programmed by ETs and is the one that is running rampant in the galaxy. And it represents the biggest threat and any planet that gets overtaken by it is going to get sterilized. So, um, yeah. So you think the black goo comes from this water? It is this water, is what you're saying? Because it's well known that the Earth has its own natural black goo deposits. So I can only assume that it's it comes from the center and it represents a very important, like, like in our bodies for Earth, it would be something akin to like plasma, I guess. Uh, and also the fact that we're depleting, this is stressed by many authors, that we're depleting Earth of its resources, such as the oil and the gold as well, is, uh, you can say, equivalent to rape. And it, it's going to turn on us, the Earth, before very long. We're, we're looking at the next, you know, reset. Uh, this they also insist on, not, uh, not just the theologians. But Chinamar as well, the one of the main characters, which is a god that says that these are end times, and that um, also about the black goo. Apparently, they also involve very fast spinning atoms that uh, that transmits information from one to the other with no loss of energy. So, uh, yeah, it's. It's probably talking about the, the same thing, except it's the pure type. It's not the um, polluted one that we hear about that also is pr practically the one that represents the biggest threats because the, you know, the Draco use it and uh, also others, I think, Abraxas. And apparently it comes from another universe. And that's why you have all these factions uniting against this AI. And this, yeah, is probably um, traceable to Metatron, but that's, right. that's getting a little deep. Yeah, no, it's interesting. It's it's fascinating to think about, uh, and we could obviously have an entire other conversation about that. But just to stick to the 
topic at hand and, and start wrap this up. I, I know you said that the whole the German story is a long story. Um, I don't know if that's something you'd be willing to summarize really quick before the end, or we could touch on that another time. It's up to you. I can, yeah, go over the highlights because it's only worth a chapter in the book, but every line is gold. However, there is a caveat because it's actually one of the best uh, books on Hollow Earth. It's called Genesis for the New Space Age by John Leith, who is a World War II vet. However, it's part of this information. It actually comes clean in the preface that it was necessary for him. He was also an OSS agent, but um, it's the, the way that it describes the need for disinformation, which is only partial, is actually pretty convincing and understandable in a way. So it's only for safety of the people because it gives a few examples that are quite compelling. But really, considering that this was written in the 1980 and that it's so ahead of the curve, I'd say that overwhelming amount is true, at least more than half. And if even 10% of it is true, it's pretty staggering. So the, the example was that, for example, um, the uh, it's, it's misinformation that there's a 125 in diameter opening and they misled that so people wouldn't go there and try to find it. And by the way, you did mention about uh, Google Earth and such being doctored and there's no doubt that they are doctored, but that still doesn't mean that it's an opening like we think is really wide, but there's some definitely something going on there because it is pixelated and widened out. So right. yeah. Right. But I can go the, into the Germans if you want. Um, yeah, we've been going for quite a while. So uh, I guess I'm sure the audience is going to want to go for that ride. So we'll just, we'll buckle up and we'll, we'll dive into it a little bit here, but, uh, and then we'll start wrapping it up. Sure. Okay. So it mentions the biggest, maybe missing piece in all this dark fleet story, which is that the Germans, the, the good example of their determination, their iron will, and their many twists of fate is that they, in 1572, 500 of them, uh, men and women, they were mercenaries and warrior colonists, and they were tasked with building forts and garrisons in deep in the Amazon, uh, between the border and Brazil and Peru. And they got there and they were attacked by headhunters, Indians, and they were presumed dead because they never made it back. And so this is 4,000 miles into the continent. And they were mainly Bavarians, but also East Prussians and some other Germanic spots. Um, and they were mercenaries for King Sebastian I. And they, at the time, the continent was split between Spanish and Germans. And they got they took their wives with them as well. And they considered themselves persecuted Lutherans and they were persecuted by the Catholics. So this also kind of goes hand in glove with what they've been hearing. And so they went in these 130-foot warships called Urkas. And this was back in the 1500s still? 1572, yes. Okay. All of this. So 
their ships got destroyed by these natives and were very aggressive, not all of them, but this particular tribe. And they managed to remove their cattle and their seeds and other goods from the ship before they got destroyed. And they retreated in deep into the jungle and they had to resort to stealth. They had to adapt to their you know, ways because uh, they were, it, it wouldn't be enough to just be aggressive um, because they were outnumbered and they, they did have armor and they did save them off well with uh, their crossbows, which were a step above the Indians' bows. So they retreated in this cave, and luckily for them, uh, the Indians were very reticent from attacking them from there because they were scared of evil spirits from that cave. And so they took refuge there, and they periodically went to the surface to gather produce and other supplies. And they found there, they, they had rivulets and sources of water and they could actually make a pretty decent existence they used fires first of all and then they just used their well-known german ingenuity to just um uh, you know grit grit it out and not get uh, overwhelmed by despair and they but they were at the same time very isolated and it, just that one cave wasn't gonna do it so they sent teams of 30 deeper into the cave and found out that they were a very long complex of tunnels. And they went to the next one and it was 70 to 75 square kilometers in size, a cavern. And also just quickly that caverns are never, you know, the ones that are inhabited by these peoples are never at random and they're never excavated or very rarely because they happen when Earth's meridians or natural energy lines form overlap and form a vortex which precludes matter from forming there. So not just uh, not only that matter can form, but they're especially energized spaces because of those meridians. So a lot of these caves aren't actually all formed from water erosion like we're taught. It's actually there's a vortex there that prevents any matter from developing in that area. Correct. And not just that, but uh, I should also mention that the Earth gets more honeycombed as you go deeper. And this was confirmed by the seismograms. They found blobs that were inexplainable that uh, slowed down considerably the waves. But anyway, the so they got deeper and they found this big cavern and they settled it. And they noticed that they, on the plus side, they had rich soil and they they had very good temperature between 80 and 100 degrees, and they had fresh source of water, and that was very cold as well. But the, on the other hand, they still had trouble with sustenance. But still, the lack of rain, cold and stuff, there at least, um, you know, could make up for it. But And maybe the subtler, the more refined, you know, energetics of the place. But yeah, they, they were fear of predators, seemingly, until they dug deeper and they got attacked by they what what they realized were those evil spirits that Indians were scared of, which they called sons of Satan. But they weren't spirits; they were creatures that also retreated because of 
you know, turbulent times on the surface. And this is a theme often. But yeah, this just goes to show that uh, not everyone is well-intended, but they did offer these sons of Satan, quote-unquote, to guide them back to the surface, but they didn't take that. And they walled them up. So they had to dig through a lot of rubble, but eventually they made it through. And so they established cities and, you know, it just goes to show the perseverance and so, determination of the Germans. Go ahead. Right. Yeah. So this, so back in the 1572 is when the first record of Germans making it to inner earth. Uh, that's the first record that we have. And that's interesting. I had not heard that story, but it would make sense why they had such a fascination with exploring further, getting there. And obviously they were in communication with ETs also. And there's that whole, that whole narrative that most of our audience is familiar with. But I wasn't aware of the, how early back it went. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And, but it does put a lot of things into perspective. And they, they still surface rarely, but they, so they still traded on the surface, but they kept their location a very tightly guarded secret. And they, uh, you do hear rumors of white people uh, recently as well in, in the jungle. And, that would explain it, but they found more and more cavities, and apparently the populations of those today, they are still inhabited. The, it's between 30 to 180,000, which is very consistent with the numbers that we hear, for example, under Romania, which is about 200,000. Mm-hmm. So it depends, of course, case by case, how much you're afforded, how much space. But they actually had to implement a child cap rule because it got out of hand after a while. But so around 1600, they implemented a cart track, a rudimentary cart and uh, wheel uh, and uh, track. So, so they would be able to transport the produce. But this was the, you know, the turning point was when they, after 75 years of traveling down this tunnel system, they finally, after three generations, so some many of them haven't even hadn't even seen the surface. They got so deep that they got to the other side of the earth, and they were very jubilant. And they they called many of them from the cave system, and they all went down there. And they were certain that they had made it back to the surface, which was legend for them, but they had no idea they were actually in hollow earth. So they saw rolling hills and lush vegetation, and they were greeted by what apparently is Atlanteans or Aturians. And they were very hospitable, like all these peoples are, and they welcoming, and they, they saw that their technology was way ahead. They had round wing planes, and that they made no noise, and they were quickly made the connection to another civilization there. They called them there, knowing that they were probably related. And it turns out that this new civilization actually were the family or the forefathers of the German peoples. They were called the Bodlanders, and they even offered these, the what are they called? They have a nickname. Um, something with rock uh, people, the Germans, 
to settle there, and which they took them on, but with the stipulation that they would commit no act of violence. So you're telling so this is why we hear so many like uh the just going back to the smoky god, I know you said there's discrepancies, but they they encountered a German speaking dialect, right? A German dialect, I should say. Uh, and then I believe if if you want to believe in Admiral Byrd's diary or not, the same thing, the German dialect. And this goes. So it's very interesting, the connection there. Yeah, of course. And yeah, it goes it goes back a long way. So also, I forgot to mention that the way they managed to make sense of anything visually inside is that photosynthesis and also the the, uh, the fact that you had lava pools not too far off these caverns and this goes back to the way that elements basically arrange themselves and compensate in these places that uh, like the caverns inside so that accounts for the uh, plants growth and stuff and they did have to adjust slightly visual to um, their eyes but they managed to do it so by now they have at least uh, 3,000 miles of labyrinth. So it, it's very serpentine. It's not straight. It, in the meantime, they did manage to make many shortcuts. But by the time that they had reached Hollow Earth, they were already from the border of Peru and Brazil down to the midway point between New Zealand and uh, Australia. <laughs> so, yeah. And wow. they apparently, these. Hollow Earth people didn't age either. They had no creases on their face. And the Bodlanders, who I mentioned, were, you know, the root people of today's and those Germans, were 30,000 years, their civilization down there was 30,000 years old. And they also seek refuge because they had been attacked on the surface by a space race who they called um, something with serpentine. So that gives you a hint. Right. But yeah, they, they died by the millions in that attack and only a few thousand survived. And um, also they inhabited today's Iran, Pakistan and um, Syria, I think. And they apparently that was the, the place where Aryan, the original Aryans were. And only later, because some of them made it down to Hollow Earth and their very advanced possibly the most advanced there but also the ones that didn't make it down there made it to also through underground system uh tunnel system to the black forest in germany and populated that place that's how come you don't find the aryans anymore in iran and wow yeah and wow. they accepted the, their stipulation for nonviolence, which is everything for them and right. you're right about them feeling uh, your intent. So you can't fake it ever. You're going to be, you know, precognized or something. Right. So, yeah, um, the surplus also from the caver from the caves was taken down to populate this place which they were offered, which was uninhabited. And by now, they, they formed what's called Six Kingdoms of Saxony. and they are very well developed. And apparently their population in 1900 was 10 million in Hollow Earth. And 
in the early 1700s, they sent their royalty, the eldest of the royalty, the Germans, to the surface with the help of the Bodlanders, their craft, which traveled easily between the, you know, the size of the earth and they wanted to, they were sworn to secrecy, of course, but they were flown there uh, under the guise that they were sons of rich plantation owners in the Amazon. And they wanted to see, to get a pulse on the surface and they came back with merchandise and information and also art and history education. And uh, they, this is proof that it's, they don't put so much emphasis on technology that the, the ones in the caverns, in the caves, needed the surface technology. They, they lent, I mean, they borrowed one of our engineers from the, Germ, from the surface Germany in the 19th century to help with, their, with reducing their squiggly lines, their, their tunnels. So it made it, their railway much more efficient and electric in time. Um, they improved annually on it bit by bit, but so the, the, in time, there were reports of these princes on the surface of Germany and the engineer that I mentioned spilled and that's how Germany got more and more aware of what was going on down there. Yeah, the that, of, yeah. that would explain that why they were always ahead of the curve. In all in For all sure. areas, yeah. Where can that where can this story be found again? It's called Genesis, and if you just Google the name Genesis and John Leith, you're gonna find a free PDF actually. Okay, I'm gonna have to read that because this is absolutely fascinating to me. Um, but I also I'll, I'll I'll let you go ahead and, and just wrap up this segment of the story, and then we'll for the sake of time, let's wrap up this episode. Maybe we could do this again another time, but. Uh, gladly. Yeah, I'm actually two-thirds of the way with this German arc, so that's fine. Um, yeah, so they even sent not the hollow earth Germans because they were sworn to nonviolence, but the cavern ones sent a regiment in World War II to, to in World War One to fight on the side of Germans, and that led to more and more relations, and they were glad to reconvene with their 14 generations apart relatives. And they gave them, the surface dwellers, the advice that they should make this known, that they should make the interior, that it's habitable, uh, popular. And apparently in uh, one of the deals post-World War I, the Germans demanded access to the South Pole for, for colonization. And the Americans and the British considered this so out there because they they said that first of all, it's just a place for icicles and that and seals. And they, they also mentioned in the stipulation that they, the reason for it, I forgot to mention, is that they wanted to get in to get to the civilization inside Earth. So they were very transparent. And they probably knew that it would sound so um, ludicrous, you know, that we would make it more conducive to what their goal. So they get they got, you know, they granted the place in Antarctica that they demanded. And then Adolf Hitler apparently was very fascinated with all this, although he wasn't allowed in, none of them were 
except like that engineer, very, very few select cases. But he was obsessed and he gathered all the data he could. And he was invited at one point by King Hakos uh, III, who was the king of the Bodlanders, down there. And him and also some higher echelon people. And they were treated like royalty, but, and um, yeah, after that, he returned the favor and invited them too. And the king, knowing that, admiring his spirit, that his pride and nationalism, he warned him that if he were to do this plans of, you know, conquering Poland and so on, that he would get um, quelled by the bigger nations than him. They would unite against him and it would uh, end in bloodshed. And he was, you know, very against this. And so, but he, he didn't hear this advice. So we all know what happened. And despite uh, the, you know, bloodshed, they still uh, found, they still felt empathy for them because they were their, you know, indirect progeny. So they um, asked them, they, they allowed them because they managed to. So it, it's described exactly like Neuschwabenland, which is a place of very um, rich vegetation and lakes, which also Admiral Byrd describes as having seen. Right, right. An area of 450 square kilometers, which is impossible to cover that large an area. I mean, to, to account for the heat just through volcanoes. So it has to be obviously something else. Mm -hmm. But uh, it seems that these uh, German, that's where New Berlin is. It's in Hollow Earth. Um, it was built by these people, these Germans who. Uh, post world, I mean, during World War One, uh, two, sorry, in uh, 1943, when uh, Hitler decided that he was on the losing end, he mm, asked uh, he and the other Germans asked for the help of the intraterrestrials, and they this time they they made uh, stricter conditions because they, so. One of the two stipulations that they gave to the cavern Germans was not only that they would be peaceful, but also that they wouldn't leave. Because I guess they wanted to to grow, you know, to, to make those uninhabited places thriving. And so you're saying that Hitler went inner earth? Well, interesting that you mentioned that because one of the things that is mentioned as being disinformation is that Hitler went to New Berlin. So that that apparently wasn't the case, but I was just going by the book. So right. um yeah, well, yeah, because there's there's the evidence that he went to Argentina also and all that stuff. So uh many schools of thought there where he went, yeah. Definitely right. definitely he lived on, there's no question. But yeah, and uh they they well, the point is they did get uh, you know granted the permission. But the end, they only an arid, a semi-arid land. So they figured might as well put them to good use. So they also created, helped the Bollanders, helped the, the second wave of Germans, which by the way, they didn't intermingle. 
they were very you know strict about that the so they created uh, 1800 wells and railroads and they, they just helped them they nurtured them and uh, saw them through but also with so they only allowed there was a huge list of denied people like anyone who persecuted the jews or any ethnicity or that were part of the concentration camps the overseers or you know the harshest the you know like mangala and stuff right. um this was was this was what was interesting that when they signed this treaty of the 30-year supervision that Podlanders would have over them they didn't understand their original writing their treaty so he overlaid it with what's described as a glass screen which instantly translated it so that's reminiscent of the glass pad so that for right. a 19 for 1980 that's pretty good disclosure there yeah and lastly they also gave them the warning the bodlanders that should they not respect the conditions that they would they have the weaponry to wipe them clean off without so their lives would flash behind their eyes you know in a millisecond so and yeah uh, the relationship between the uh, second wave of germans and the six kingdoms of uh, saxony is comparable to usa and canada so they know they're, they're pretty much only slight differences but they still have their own personalities and uh, methods of thinking and customs and stuff right. but overall the cavern germans did maintain their religion and their practice their their beliefs and their culture and identity they were very strict about that and that also explains the teutonic nature of the space germans mm -hmm. that would put it into perspective and why they're not nazis because there was much more short-lived than all these people who had time to develop and yeah that's that's uh, in a nutshell what <laughs> that's yeah. a big that's a big nutshell uh um i don't even think i need to read the book now <laughs> um thank you i'm gonna go ahead and wrap this up because i have reached my limit for retaining any more information right now and i'm i'm sure other people have too as well this is uh probably one of our longest episodes we don't go this that long for that very reason because after just like they determined that after eight hour after an eight hour workday people are no longer effective it's the same way with retaining information after so long. That's why TikToks are, are a minute, you know, uh, the attention span of civilization is just not there anymore. But I know people have the people that have stuck around. Thank you so much, guys, for tuning in. And thank you for coming on and sharing all your knowledge. This has been absolutely fascinating. Uh, and in more than one way, this is incredible information. And I'm excited to cover it like we did because uh, we haven't really dove that deep into it. And thank you again for coming on. Do you have anything uh, you want to share as far as links or where people can find you? Well, just thanks a lot for having me on. It's really cool. I've been watching your show for a couple of years, so did not see this coming. So anytime, we're happy to come on. But yeah, I, this goes so much deeper. I can't even put it into words. So we only covered the surface here, but yeah, maybe we'll, uh, you know, reconvene in, uh, I don't know, half a year or a year. But uh, so the, as for links, yeah, I have a fledgling YouTube channel called St. Olga 69. <laughs> and I, I made some SSP and a few Hollow Earth related videos too.
So you can check that out if you want. St. Olga 69 on YouTube. I'll put that link below. Uh, I have, that's how I discovered you originally. Uh, I was watching your videos on ESSP and you do really great work and editing is very, uh, very well put together. So I, I recommend everybody go check that out. Uh, it's very digestible information. So yeah, thank you again. This has been fantastic. Thank you guys all for tuning in. Uh, we love you all. And until next time, have a great evening. Good night. Good night, guys. Thank you.